Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now pressure from thomas off the edge eli manning stays on his feet airs it out down the field it is caught by remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks it's me one of your hosts james and i know the perfect person to continue this perfect season we've been having along with me you know it's not about the result it's about the journey and we're here with a guy who knows all too much about that our very special guest the man who painted the sideline that Mario Manningham squeezed his toe in for the second time that Boston's heart was broken by the worst Manning brother. Please introduce yourself. That's right. It's me, the very special guest, Xavier. But, you know, today we actually have another special guest coming on just for a little bit uh, of Boston sports talk. Please welcome our chief uh, despondent correspondent, Matt Rigo. Happy to be here, guys. Did you actually paint the sideline? <laughs> I was like, I didn't do that. I was like, I was like, guys, I did not do that. Did you do that? No, you didn't do that. <laughs> no, it, it was Xavier. It was, it was actually, it, it wasn't 52 yards. It was 52 yards and two inches. So, go. game needs to be played under protest. Yeah, yes. all those changes to baseball, you know, three inches, two inches, it makes a difference, you know. No, since we could not get David Tyree's helmet, we have brought you on Rigo to... Here's how I'll put it. If I had a nickel for every time in the last couple months that a Boston team has lost to a Miami-based eight seed in TD Garden in Game 7, how many nickels would I have, Diaz? believe you'd have a whole dime there, James. I would have a dime. And so we've brought a dime on Rigo here to uh, talk about Boston. And uh, yeah, just please fill our cup with your tears here for a moment. Man, I don't know where to start. I mean, I feel like it's kind of what we deserved as a team you know for 365 days the celtics were pretty much unstoppable and the best team in the nba starting in february 2022 couldn't get it done in the nba finals but you know around february 2023 we started falling into these bad habits again where you know we were just lazy couldn't win unless you know our back was against the wall played with our meat as doc rivers would say <laughs> um, and the writing was kind of on the wall in those first two series. It felt like maybe we had started uh, going down a better path after Game 7, Tatum's explosion against your Sixers, but going down 3-0, I was pretty hopeless. We have a little Boston chat amongst our college friends. Posted some, you know, 04-related Red Sox nostalgia. Try to keep the faith, but, you know, it didn't feel right. And uh, it just wasn't right at the end. It, it wasn't meant to be. Well, I mean, truthfully, the, the way it, it's funny that you say that, like it wasn't meant to be. And I forget who said this, but I read somebody recently wrote that sometimes we have this idea that things are preordained in sports. Like it was always going to go that way. Mm -hmm. And Tatum rolls his ankle 30 seconds into game seven. And your just most recent game seven. He exploded for 50. Was it destiny that Jason Tatum was going to roll his ankle? You know, like, 
there, all these things happen. And in the end, we ascribe narrative to it. But truthfully, if Tatum doesn't roll his ankle there on somewhat of a freak play, yeah, who knows how that game ends up going. And also, you know, Robert Williams puking in the locker room every five minutes or something like that. That was something going on. I think something that we have failed to mention is I actually was at the game. I saw Tatum roll his ankle and I said, okay, this is just some classic Tatum antics, you know. Oh, I'm so hurt. Oh, I need to get all these calls, all this bullshit. You know, we saw all the time in the NBA finals. It Like, you know, I rather watch like, I, I don't even, what's something terrible? Like, what's a terrible thing that I rather watch? I don't know. An Oakland Athletics game where you're rooting for them. Yeah, yeah, sure. I rather, yeah, honestly, I rather the Red Sox go 162-0 and rather than watch Tatum drive to the basket and go woo every time because he wants to get a call instead of finishing hard to the basket. It just fucking killed me. And I said, all right, well, Tatum's going to be doing this again. But not hearing the updates from the sideline reporter about the conditions of the player really made me lose my mind asking, why isn't Tatum running around? Why is he asking for the ball? Why is he stepping up and being humbly one of the greatest players in the NBA? Yeah, had me losing my mind. So, you know, maybe that was meant to be. But really, I think it, you know, the Celtics have been known as one of the deepest teams in the NBA, top to bottom. And, you know, we've won games where Tatum only had seven points. And I don't think it was, I think it was meant to be us losing this way. It wasn't meant to be us winning at all because we couldn't win in the spite of our superstar. So it's tough. It takes a complete team to win it all, uh, not just one player who ended up playing the rest of the game anyway. Would you pay Jalen Brown $300 million? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't really know how this new CBA works and all that stuff, but I know it's going to be really hard to keep him. But shit, man. You know, I think that Portland's a really viable trade partner, though. Whether we get Dame or we get number three and other stuff, too. Should be interesting. I'd love to keep Jalen, but we'll see. we'll see what happens. I just yeah. think, like, conceptually... It's insane to me that people are now automatically back to the you got to split up the Jays talk because, like, we just saw them in the NBA Finals last year. If Steph Curry mm-hmm. doesn't go nuclear in game four, they go up 3-1 and yep. they have three chances to close out the Warriors. So, I mean, I think it's crazy to, to have that conversation. But, I mean, to kind of your point about this team, like, I think the cracks really started the show in that game mm-hmm. five against Atlanta. When you're up 15 at home, game five, put this team away and somehow or another the Hawks end up winning that game. I don't even remember because it seemed yep. impossible. The um, fatal flaw of the Celtics is they can't step on people's necks. They just can't do what they need to do to close it out, end the game, let's have a party. Every once in a while you'd see it, but not enough. But you're definitely right about that. That and Ime Odoka not being able to uh, keep his pants up at work. Listen, yeah. in the 1950s, Red Auerbach probably did worse, you know, and that guy's a legend. So just wrong time, wrong place, Eme. Sorry. Yeah. Born in the wrong generation, right? Oh, my God. But uh, one thing that I'll say is game six, the very end, that was not a game that the Celtics deserved to win. That was a game that was won miraculously by Derek White. And it was one of those, like, same old Celtics, you know, they're doing it again. They can't win unless they need to at the very last minute. And that was quintessential. This is the Remember That Guy podcast, of course, right? Of course. Is it, last is it, I checked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys said X is, X is a guest. I was like, I thought X is always, always on this podcast. So 
I wouldn't be doing my part unless I named a guy. He isn't a guy yet, but he will be one day, I believe. Unless, you know, he turns into some sort of a monster over the next however many years, even though he's only 28. Derek White will be a guy. And, you know, he had the opportunity to be a guy that we remember, like Dave Roberts on the Red Sox stealing the base, which becomes the catalyst and the trademark moment that we remember in that 04 run. But now that layup is just, you know, a really good play, but nothing special. So he could have been a guy that our children and our children's children know. But now he's just going to be like, oh, yeah, that guy that was pretty good that Brad Stevens made the trade for. And yeah, he was decent. Maybe he's a part of a championship year, but he'll never sit in that hall of guidem that we wish he could be in. Sir, the besmirchment of Spurs legend Derek White will go no fucking <laughs> further here. Yeah, Spurs legend. How many more Spurs legend Derek White? Happened, yeah, which is that yeah. Derek White, the only likable Celtics player on a national uh-huh. level, got to be a playoff hero for a venerated franchise that still lost the most embarrassing Game Seven in NBA postseason history. This is the best possible outcome for Derek White. Do, yeah. do not slander his name in this hall. Spurs, I think you're slandering the term Spurs legend a little bit, you know, but Wemby's already getting Spurs legend. Tim Duncan, George Gervin, mm-hmm. there's two seasons of Derek White. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. You can't stop the Buffalo. <laughs> I think you seem to be taking this very well, and I want to give you credit for that. Because um, that has not seemed to me to be the larger response. And I just want to say, I think it couldn't have happened to a better fan base because there was, again, credit to you for being a relatively rational person in this, are the first person I've heard who didn't seem to have some kind of deep-seated belief that as soon as they went down 0-3, it was about to become you know, that next great New England sports comeback after the 04 Red Sox and after the 28 to three Patriots. Cause I feel like that's the closest I've said this to you, Diaz and X, that that is the football equivalent of 0 and three. You can't do that in oh. a series, but it's pretty fun. Oh, definitely. And so for this fan base who has so consistently since everything turned in 2004, wanted to be able to maintain that gritty underdog lifestyle while also proclaiming that they're title town constantly. Like, you cannot have it both ways. You have fought tooth and nail against every single league to have it both ways for nearly two decades now. And here's the thing. This is the beginning of a potential redemption because once you start losing a bunch of shit again because the worm has to turn that other way at some point, the Celtics and the Bruins are the two that have held that off so far, but the Red Sox are a phenomenal offense who couldn't possibly outpitch like a very good college team at this point. And the Patriots are, are behind Mac Jones and that's great for them. This is just a really wonderful moment for all of us. It is a, uh, I hope for you and for all of your kind, a chance to grow back to the once generally likable people that you were as yeah. like, 04 Red Sox fans. The 04 Red Sox, with the exception of Xavier here, probably one of the more like universally rooted for teams in their moment. And was, was that the year fans killed someone concept. during the celebration? Or am I thinking about the next one? No, 2004, when they made it to the championship, someone got killed. Yeah. Dark moment. But, but yeah, anyway, you have a good point there, honestly, because everybody was like so behind us in 2004. It was like the best, but. 
yeah, nobody was really rooting for the Celtics to come back three games to none. It's kind of weird. Like, no, it's not. It's not yeah. weird. We all hate the Celtics. I know. It's kind of sweet, honestly. <laughs> like, growing up, people were like, you know, the Patriots are like the Yankees of the NFL. I was like, no, no, they're not. But now I realize, like, okay, maybe we are. And, the, Celtics uh, the, Celtics are. the Celtics are, are because they've only got one like recent championship, yeah. and otherwise they just cling to an ancient history that is in a like unrecognizable game anymore, which is the exact exactly. same as the New York Yankees. Yeah, exactly. But honestly, it feels good to be hated. The Red Sox have like the most beautiful, loyal fans. History, they're they make baseball great. The Yankees fucking suck, but they make baseball <laughs> great. Um, the Phillies are great. I love the Phillies. Um, I wish they had a the ballpark's good. And then the, the uh, Orioles are fantastic, and they should be better, but capitalism, man, what you going to do? I don't know why I'm going off on the tangent. Baseball's the best sport ever, and you can't hate the Red Sox. Um, you can definitely hate the Celtics. That's not true. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you can. We're so great. But anyway, I was, gonna, I was thinking back on this. After the Bruins absolutely blew it, I said, it's okay. It was a blood sacrifice. We're going to get one of two things. We're either going to get a Celtics championship. Didn't happen. It's totally fine. Totally cool. Because the other opportunity for the blood sacrifice was Shohei Otani this offseason. So he's coming to Boston. It's going to be beautiful. And uh, I can't wait to talk about it uh, next time I'm on here with you guys. When that prediction comes true. We will, I, I guess, look forward to when we have our final episode of the show as sports is canceled when that happens. We would love to have you on for the finale at that point. All right. But... Otani on the Red Sox is better than the Yankees or the Mets, right? Uh, not Mets, honestly. Marginally better than Yankees. We have so much time to talk about this, but we know he's going to go to the Dodgers. He doesn't want to leave the West Coast. There's zero chance he comes to the East Coast. I think the Padres will offer him $500 million, and then he'll sign for $450 million with the Dodgers because he'll oh. think that they're a better team. I think he's going to get 600 from Fenway, but we'll see. <laughs> you, you all may be right. We will look forward to having you on at that time. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us this time. Rudy. All right, guys. Have a great rest of your episode. Appreciate it. So, Diaz and Xavier, with our delicious frosting of Boston misery, what else is making memories for you right now? So, as listeners may have heard at the end of last week's episode, uh, I just got back from a wonderful vacation down in Puerto Rico. And I have two memories that are sports-related from the time I was down there. I didn't watch a ton of NBA basketball while I was there. I did see about the very end of that Celtics Heat game six. We were at a salsa festival in Carolina. Uh, it was fantastic. El Gran Combo, which is one of the best Puerto Rican salsa bands of all time. They were playing. They put on a great show. But when you're at these things, sometimes you got to go to the bathroom. And I happened to get in line for a bathroom with a gentleman that had the game on his phone for that last like 30 second sequence. And, you know, we're both just talking about, oh, how crazy is this game, blah, blah, blah. And we end up watching the final tip in. We were holding up the bathroom line because we needed to see the end of the game. <laughs> so I, I appreciated that random gentleman for indulging me. But so I didn't get to see that whole game or much of any NBA basketball while I was down there. What I did get to see was the play from the BSN, B-S-A-N-A. The Baloncesto Superior Nacional, which is the National Puerto Rican Basketball League. I got to see the Cangrejeros de Santorce. Uh, Cangrejero is like a crabber, 
against the Grises de Umacao, and Grises is Grays. Just a color, folks. There's nothing more to it. Like uh, the Homestead, Homestead Grays, is it? Yeah. Yes. I think Providence, the Providence Grays. So we got to see uh, at Coliseo Roberto Clemente uh, in San Torce, and both rosters just chock full of guys. It was, it was one of my favorite experiences I've ever had. Uh, we were about four rows back by one of the uh, tunnels. Unfortunately, 2014 Team USA gold medalist at the FIBA World Cup, Kenneth Farid, did not suit up for the Congrejeros in this game. We did get to see David, not as racist as my dad, Stockton, come in and light it up from three. For the Grises de Humacao, uh, we got to see Chiek Diallo, who was the 2015 McDonald's High School MVP for the All-Star Game that year. So that would have been the 2016 NBA draft. So I'm trying to think. I think that would have been Fultz was. No, so that would have been. That would have been. Simmons played in that game. He's probably better than Ben Simmons. I mean, clearly from the award, he was better than Ben Simmons then and might be now because Ben Simmons will never play again. He very well may be. Check Diallo holding down the center spot for the Grises, but the player that I was most excited to see out on the court was not the first, not the second, but James Ennis, the third starting guard for the Grises. He's been bouncing around European leagues for the last year or two, uh, but he did have a pretty lengthy NBA stint at the start of his career, most notably for the 2018-2019 Philadelphia 76ers. I have a fun fact. I'd like either of you, or perhaps both combined, to try to name the five Sixers that were on the court when the Kawhi shot happened. Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard. No, oh, sorry, uh, Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid. I'm so sorry. Simmons. Simmons. James Ennis. James Ennis. Tobias? And Tobias was the fifth. I love so much that we got James Ennis before Tobias Harris, as James Ennis was a better defender. He was a very important bench piece for that Sixers team that, as it stands, probably came the closest to winning the championship of any team in this run so far, to lose on a Game 7 buzzer beater, the only one in NBA history, to the eventual NBA champions. I think it's pretty safe to say it's as close as we got. But got to see James Ennis out there, put up a very quiet and efficient 22 points, which led the game. And, I mean, most importantly, from my perspective, when I saw them coming off at halftime, I didn't realize when I got the seats. But the entire Humacao team was coming down the tunnel that we were seated at. So I said something to the effect of, James Ennis, you're the man. And he gave me a nod and a fist bump. <laughs> Uh, through the game, took a selfie with him. That was great. Definitely the, the sports highlight of the trip. Uh, so shout out to James Ennis for his 22 points in the 116 to 86 win uh, for Humacao over San Terce, which is just one other thing that I wanted to say about this game. There are certain games in uh, the BSN that are very well attended. Guaynabo is all sellouts right now because DeMarcus Cousins signed with them. Boogie. This was not a dense, this was not a thick crowd at Santorsa. I would say there's maybe about 2,000 in attendance. It probably seats about six. But, you know, some people get the idea that these overseas leagues are just, you know, blog games with players that aren't really invested and the fans that are there don't really care. 
the fans who were in attendance, I at, from a, as a neutral fan got to see like what I look like when I'm watching the Sixers. Hell I've yeah. never seen such despondent and infuriated fans in my <laughs> life as the fans of the Cangrejeros de Sontorce were watching their team get absolutely decimated. Just fucking blown out. Because what I want to put in perspective too for you is 116 to 86 sounds yeah, like a horrible NBA but, score. But did they claw their way back to that margin? Well, it's not even that. I think it was 38 at its worst. But these are 10 minute quarters. So it's in 40 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> they gave up 116 points in 40 minutes. points a quarter in 10 minutes. Which, so hope if I do math real quick, we divide that by five and we add it. Uh, so we're looking at equivalent of giving up 145 points in a, in a regulation NBA game. Just absolutely no defense. My favorite was there was one fan, quite portly gentleman, uh, probably in his 60s. At one point during a timeout, he furiously ran up to probably a member of the marketing team. Certainly not a coach, but a person that was representing the team officially at the game. He grabbed them and in Spanish said, every time they come down, one pass, wide open three. One pass, wide open three. We come down, we stare at each other for 20 seconds, and then we throw something up and we pray to God that it goes in. <laughs> and they come down and they come past and they get wide open. The, the worker just very politely nodded and was like, yeah, yeah, I know, it's crazy. And then the fan afterwards shook his hand, said, thank you for listening to me, and went back to his seat to watch the rest of the game. Incredible passion, but respectfully displayed and stayed to the end of the game. So they, they ended up winning the, I guess the rubber match isn't the word, the return match. There we go. They played a return match against Humacal two days later, which they did win. Kenneth Farid played in that game. Might have made a bit of a difference. But uh, by and large, we have our merchandise now. We have our shirts. And there's no doubt that we are now big-time fans of all the guys on the Cangajeros de Santorce. We're going to make that a thing? I think we will. Uh, they're making memories. I think when we've got team naming rights money, that is the first thing I want to do. But I'll, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what's been going on here, Diaz. There's been a crime wave going on this year. I'm not sure if you guys have heard. Home run robberies are at an all-time high this season. We are currently on pace for 80. That would shatter the old record. This is all just an excuse for me to tell you that the record for most home run robberies in a season set in 2019 is 69. Nice. Yes, very, very nice. And hopefully it'll stay that way and we'll do something about the out-of-control crime wave here. That is not what I mostly want to talk about, though. Today, on June 2nd, we had the newest installment in the single greatest baseball video game series that is out right now. This is called Super Mega Baseball 4, for you folks at home. It's out by Metalhead Software, that is a Canadian-based developer who, as you might have gathered, has put out three other Super Mega Baseball games. This is the first one since they were acquired by EA, following the release in 2020 of uh, Super Mega Baseball 3. That is the first one that I got to play in, in late May of 2020. And uh, I've sunk in a good 400 hours into that game. I think it is legitimately the greatest baseball game of all time. It continues with Super Mega Baseball 4 now, the legacy that EA last had with MVP Baseball 2005. And we've brought this up before because it is legendary not only for being a good game, not only for having dense minor league systems, but also because some players' rights were missing. And so we have people like the legendary outfielder for the San Francisco Giants, John Dowd. Now, 
up until this point, Super Mega Baseball has not had the rights to any players. And so they have had their own fictional league called Super Mega League with such legendary luminaries as uh, Hammer Long Ballo, who has been the cover athlete up to this point, Rip Dingers, one of my personal favorite, and then I do also love the pair of Junior Young Junior and Junior Young Senior. That sounds like a Kim Possible thing. What is it? Uh, send your senior senior and send, send your, your senior, senior junior. Senior. Yes, indeed. Uh, fucking love Kim Possible. This time, because of being purchased by EA, they have player rights. But in order to keep the timelessness that they have wanted, they have made sure that it is all alumni of the major leagues. Uh, so all the players are old legends. You can now play with Babe Ruth and Willie Mays. And also, as we learned just before recording this, Bucky fucking Dent, which is hysterical. One last thing that it has uh, an increased presence of. There's one other league. There's the one with all the fictional players. There's the one with all the retired players. And then there's one with just a bunch of baseball content creators. This includes people like all the guys from John Boy Media. This includes like Foolish Baseball. And I'm just bringing this up because I am sad to say, everyone, we did not make the cut for Super Mega Baseball 4. But this is my promise to you. Super Mega Baseball 5. Book it. We're going to get our faces in there, baby. Do you think they can afford us, though, with our media rights fees? This is how we get the money to purchase the Kangai Heros of Santorsa. Totally fair. But anyway, that's what's making memories for me right now. Super Mega Baseball 4. I have touched the menus for about five minutes. I can't wait to begin my 400-hour <laughs> odyssey shortly after recording this. In the meantime, Xavier, what's making memories for you? I got a couple things. There's been a lot going on in the world of sports uh, recently. Thankfully, we had our uh, our good friend on to talk about basketball, so I don't have to get into that. I wanted to talk about two two things, well, two different sports. One, French Open is on right now, and there has been a lot of controversy on the women's side. World number two, Arena Sabalenka, is Belarusian. And she skipped the mandatory press conference today, citing her mental health. This is not a Naomi Osaka situation. This is a she refuses to answer any questions about her outspoken support for the president of Belarus, who is a despot who rigged their election and then brutally crushed protesters. So this was from the most recent press conference before she decided to skip. This is the reporter. I want to ask you two questions. First, it's about Belarus. In 2020, you signed a letter to support Lukashenko in times when he was torturing and beating up protestants in the street. Eventually, you showed up celebrating the new year with him. How is it possible that the potential world number one supports a dictator and she cut them off saying, I have no comments to you, so thank you for your question. Next question. The second question is, you keep saying that nobody supports the war. Nobody. Can you speak for yourself and say, I, Arena Sabalenka, flatly condemn the fact that Belarus is attacking Ukraine with missiles and want it to stop? Answer, I've got no comments to you. Question, so you basically support everything because you cannot speak up. You're not a small person, Arena. You can gets cut off by the moderator. And that's it. And then she refused to attend any press conference after that. But again, she, she has said, oh, no athletes support the war. But she has gone out and done stuff with Lukashenko, who is a dictator who is openly using his military authority to attack Ukraine as well. Like One might say waging war. Yeah, yeah. But she has now decided to skip things saying, quote, I should be able to feel safe when I do interviews with the journalists after my matches, which I'm sure all the Ukrainian uh, athletes definitely, 
appreciate her desire to want to feel safe in in these trying times. But she Sabalenka is a very weak person who is openly talking about how she has faced hate for no reason and how it's awful and has spoken in disgust about how a Ukrainian athlete she faced in the first round didn't shake her hand without acknowledging the fact that, oh, her country is brutally murdering Ukrainians for no reason and, you know, refuses to admit that. So it's not fun and I hope she doesn't win because fuck that. In other less war and terrible news, I'll talk about two soccer things. First off, the under-20 World Cup is on right now. The USA is fucking dominating. This U.S. under-20 men's national team is really, really good. They've now made their fourth straight quarterfinal. They have scored 10 goals and have conceded zero. I I have one clarifying question. When you say they've made their fourth straight quarterfinal, is this the group that at U17 and then U18 and then U19? Oh, no, this is the fourth straight U20 quarterfinal. Okay. Which is to me more encouraging. The U.S. is it's really the good program, at the U.S. not the squad, which yeah, I agree yeah. with you, Diaz, would read to me as optimism. Yeah, the, U.S. Is, uh, the U.S. is actually really good at the U-20 level, but they've never won any of these tournaments, but they're really good at making it to the quarterfinals. But this under-20 squad is really good, despite playing without a lot of their best under-20 players who are full-on professionals in the middle of their seasons or at the end of their seasons and can't you know, make it. Players like Gaga Slonina, Caleb Wiley, Cade Cowell... Brandon Craig of the Philadelphia Union, Jack McGlynn, also of the Philadelphia Union, are, are playing really, really well. And so 10 goals scored, no goals conceded. The team with the second best defensive record has given up three goals, so it's not even close. And they play Uruguay in the quarterfinals uh, on Sunday. Now, they'll be favored to, to win that game. First, because their team is really good. Second, because they have two days more rest. And third, because Uruguay just played an entire game down a man yesterday against Gambia and just barely won that, so they're probably exhausted. But if they win that, then they face the winner of Israel versus Brazil in the semis. This tournament is wide open. Really good chance for the U.S. to actually win a tournament at any age level. This U.S. team is, is really, really good. Go the Baby la- Patriots. Yeah, go, go Baby Eagles. The, the last thing I'll talk about is kind of the, the, the other end of, of, of soccer. Uh, so, bit of context. Bayern Munich are the biggest supported club in Germany. Borussia Dortmund are the second biggest. But the third biggest is Schalke, who just got relegated. And the fourth biggest is Hamburg. Uh, Hamburger SV, which is also the largest club in all of northern Germany. And until 2018... Hamburg had been the only team to participate in every single season of the Bundesliga. Not Bayern, not Dortmund, not Mönchengladbach. It was Hamburg. But then they get relegated. Especially in the two Bundesliga, they finish fourth, miss out on a promotion by two points after they choked, losing three of their last four. 2019-2020, uh, the same, finished fourth again by losing their last two. 2020-21, finished fourth for the third consecutive year. Last year, they finish third, and in Germany, the team that's in third doesn't play a, a playoff against fourth, fifth, or sixth. They, play, they do a playoff against the team that was third worst in the Bundesliga. So third worst in the Bundesliga, third best in the two Bundesliga, face each other over two legs to see who gets to be in the Bundesliga. 
and they lose that one. So that now this year, finally, this is our chance. Last game of the season. They needed to both win and have uh, Heidenheim, their direct rival, not win. They're playing away at Sandhausen, and they win one nothing. And the Sandhausen PA tells them that Heidenheim lost. And their away fans storm the field. They're on the pitch in tears, crying, celebrating finally being back in the Bundesliga. But they got the wrong information. Because the Heidenheim game was not over yet. Heidenheim was down 2-1 to Regensburg. Then scored a penalty in the 93rd minute. And then in the 99th minute, the 9th minute of stoppage time, score a winner. Meaning that Heidenheim wins the two Bundesliga on 67 points, is promoted. Darnstadt, also on 67, is promoted. And Hamburg, on 66 points, is into the playoff, where they just lost 3-0 to Stuttgart in the first leg and have to overturn that at home next week. Seems like a tall order. And Hamburg, despite being baited by the Sandhausen EA into believing they are promoted, are most likely going to spend another year in the second level of German soccer. That happened in America. Like, we don't have relegation, but that, like, so many fucking Americans would sue that PA announcer. I don't know what you could sue him for, but it would be funny. Emotional distress, I think, would be... <laughs> it's always age, emotional but I'm not distress, alone. isn't it? Well, Xavier, thank you for keeping us up to date on the, the pitch and clay. It's Wimbledon, if I recall correctly. That's the one that has a lawn surface, which more directly ties into what you have for us today. Yeah, so, you know, I was inspired by a couple different things. Um, first off, I just spent uh, a weekend back home in New York for my sister's med school graduation. Congratulations to Dr. Jillian. But, you know, at a Memorial Day barbecue graduation, you're going to gonna play some 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 backyard games some lawn games you know we played a bit of cornhole so i was thinking about that also thinking about james commiserating over the past couple weeks uh and about how being close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades that combination of barbecuing and horseshoes made me think like we haven't talked about any lawn games any backyard sports so that that's what we wanted to bring up today and what better way for me to start than just going directly with the inspiration and talking about horseshoes. Quit horsing around. Let's get to it. So, if I'm going to talk about horseshoes, it can only start with one person. And this is the man that the New York Times called, quote, perhaps the most dominant athlete in any sport in the country. And this man is Alan Francis. Do we know if that reporter had watched other sports? Yes, yes. The reporter definitely had watched other sports, but... When I tell you about why Alan Francis was worthy of that, you might understand. I mean, my, okay. my brain first immediately goes to the part of it that loves early 2000s basketball. And I'm like, yeah, if you combine Alan Iverson and Steve Francis, you get a hell of an athlete. <laughs> so Alan Francis, born in 1970, raised in Blythedale, Missouri, right near the border of Iowa, about halfway between Kansas City and Des Moines. Uh, his family were farmers. But his father was a part-time horseshoe pitcher who would play in their pastures. Alan was hooked from a young age and would regularly practice five hours a day. He attended his first world championship, worlds in quotes, 
Des Moines as a Spectre in 1978. Would any of you like to guess who won this 1978 World Horseshoe Championship? Bo Jackson. He has connection to uh, our extended Gyniverse. Pete it Weber. It is Walter Ray Williams Jr., who was a great horseshoe pitcher before becoming a PBA world champion. Oh, um, shit! Yes, and at, would go on to concurrently be great at both, winning PBA championships and horseshoe world championships at the same time in the 80s. I mean... That, that seems like good crossover in the... Right. It's, it's got the same it's motion, so, you know. Like, if, if we would have got that dude on a softball circle, could have been a dominant pitcher. But there's still time. But um, the next year, Allen begins competing professionally as a nine-year-old. When he was 12, he wins his first under-18 junior world title. He then wins three more in a row. In 1989, at just 19, wins the men's world championship. He's already the best in the world. He then takes a break to go to college, becoming the first in his family to do so. And he studies agronomy at local Northwest Missouri State, but can't really get a job there. So while looking around, he does win Worlds again for the second time in 1993. Starts dating a woman named Amy Brown, who was also from a family of horseshoe enthusiasts, and they move to Ohio. Gets an office job, gets married, and now with a steady, steady job, style of family life, he's able to dedicate even more time to horseshoes. And because of that, he dominates. 1995, he wins Worlds for a third time. He was inducted into the World Horseshoe Hall of Fame in 1996 at the age of 26. He then wins Worlds four times in a row. I mean, was, we've talked about a lot of people that are in Halls of Fame while still active. It is normally like on the back half of the career. No, and this I was at 26. A horseshoe career has pretty long longevity as well. Yeah, he he was so good from such a young age. They knew he they had to induct him, despite the fact that this is a drop in the bucket to what he then he does after this. They should have done it like sometimes people showed like the Tom Brady graphic where it's like if you divide this career in half, you have two Hall of Fame careers. That's what they should have done with him. They should be like, all right, up to this point, Hall of Fame. We're hitting the reset button. Let's do this again in five years. That's what See, they should have done. If they how did many that, blocks can you get? If they did that, they probably could have split his career into three or four sections. So that's the 90s. In the last 20 years, Alan Francis has won Worlds 18 times. And one of those years was canceled because of COVID. The only thing that can beat him on the horseshoe pitch is a viral infection, the depths of which we still are not certain of three years later. Pretty much. So at this point, he has 26 world titles. The horseshoe pitch with the second most is Ted Allen with 10. And he's still going, so he's almost certainly going to at least triple Ted Allen. But because most of our listeners who may have you know, played horseshoes in their backyard or at, at a park, might not have a concept of what success in horseshoes really looks like. I want to go a little more in-depth about how dominant Francis is. In championship horseshoes, two competitors play to 40 points, with any points scored in round offsetting. Uh, usually only one player scores. Two stakes are placed 40 feet apart. Each competitor throws two horseshoes per round. 
If you get a horseshoe within six inches of the stake, it's one point. Horseshoe that completely surrounds the stake is a ringer and worth three points. So if in one round, one player gets two that are six inches away, another player gets a ringer and another that's four inches away, the only scoring is that latter player gets four points for the ringer and then the second closest to the, to the stake. In modern play, a pitcher can get a ringer 70% of the time. They're considered elite. It's estimated that the average backyard player gets a ringer anywhere between 1% to 3% of the time. So very, 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 very minor. And championships pre-Allen Francis were usually won by pitchers who had ringer percentages between 75 to 78%. If you can get up there, you're going to challenge or win. Alan Francis regularly has a ringer percentage of 90, the only person in the world to do so. As an example, in the 2009 Worlds, Francis threw ringers on 25 of his last 26 pitches, and over the 19-game tournament, threw ringers on 917 of 1,016 pitches, for 90.26%. So this is not, you're throwing it 100 times and getting 90 out of 100. This is, you're throwing it 1,000 times getting 900 out of a thousand which is even to people who do this every day it's incomprehensible what he does one of the things that makes him so special is he has his own unique throwing style that people have tried to replicate but can't it's called the three-quarter reverse he holds the horseshoe sideways in his hands as the open end points to his left with his thumb on top and he tries to like it, there's no arc on it he kind of like flings it horizontal so it spins. It's it's a line drive. Yeah, it, it's supposed to keep it from bouncing. So it's essentially like a horizontal spin that he puts on it so that it'll hit the stake, drop. And he is the best in the world at doing this. There, there's there's not really any money in this. Uh, he, he does it for, really for the love of the game. It's about, you, you win like $4,000 if you win Worlds, which he has said is enough for their annual family trip to go to Worlds. So it's essentially just covering the, the cost of getting there. And he, he, he does have one sponsor with white distributors, which makes tournament-level horseshoes. So he has his own Alan Francis-branded horseshoes, which also brings that's, in, like... That's fucking sick. Which also bring in, like, a couple grand, but he is a printing company purchasing manager by day and just dominant horseshoe pitcher on the weekends who destroys all comers with stats and, and a pitching style that no one else in the world is able to do. I just love the idea. Like I'm going to send you both a picture of Alan Francis after this. And you'd be like, yeah, that that's what a horseshoe pitcher I, I would expect looks like. He's like a tall, lanky guy with military style haircut and a eighties mustache. And the mustache was the one part that I was most confident in. Yeah. It, he's just so good at something that, some people do not think about and will never think about. And there's nothing really in this other than just really loving to do it. And I love that. I would love to be really good at something that's just like, you're really good at this one thing, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm okay at that. Alan Francis, the world's greatest horseshoe pitcher. Well, and just a little bit better than okay. I think you might be short-selling your guy there. What I find funny about the winnings you're saying is, sure, that pays for his vacation every year. That means that he has made participating in the horseshoe tournament like a guaranteed net loss of money for everyone else for about two decades now. Pretty much. I mean, if you're going there, you're going, you're going for second. 
Like the only thing I can think of is like one of my favorite old basketball stories is Larry Bird showing up for the inaugural three-point contest and just his warm-up jacket and saying, all right, boys, who's getting second tonight? And this dude does that every year. He's really good. And one thing I did learn about horseshoes through this, I'm used to like throwing it in like a sand pit. Professionals do not use sand. They use like special clay. Like professional horseshoe pits have a clay base because it essentially requires to be more precise because you can't throw it into the sand and have it slide. It'll stick right where you're at. So you have to be perfect because there's no margin for error. It's just like the uh, the baseball mud that the umpires rub on. I love that. Yeah, that that one guy gets from the Delaware River and blindfolds people so that they, so no one else can know where it is. It's his special mud, and he deserves to to keep that secret. But uh, I appreciate you not keeping Alan Francis a secret from us. That was phenomenal. But I I may have a rebuttal if I may. Start by saying I'm making a submission in the builders category today. Feel free to let that color your opinion later on if you will. But uh, I, I I struggled with this a little bit, and this is the person I think finally kind of spoke to me about it, and it is definitely in the builder's category. It is May 2020, deep in the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, if you were working in a restaurant like myself months ago on every screen, you'd have first taken Sports Center in the morning, uh, and you would have later on in the evening, particularly this time of year now in May, Baseball, NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, whatever you want. You can poke your head out the kitchen, watch some sport. But for months now, while we've been doing all of this takeout delivery, it's just been reruns. And we have seen Kobe Bryant's game over and over with 81 points. We have seen Felix Hernandez's perfect game. We have, for some reason, I do not know why, but like every single week we saw the Calgary Flames win the 1989 Stanley Cup. That in particular is seared into my memory. But what else is seared into my memory is a site that we saw on ESPN there in May of 2020, when we were blessed with the first live sport to return since the beginning of the pandemic. It is a sport that had been previously on some of the other ESPN subsidiaries, but now it was taking center stage on the main showpiece. This was Cornhole Mania 2020. And it is the reworked flagship event for the American Cornhole League. It is the brainchild of the league's founder, its guiding figure, and my guy for today, Stacey Moore. I mean, truly... No sport is better positioned for social distancing than the one where you have to stand like, I mean, I'm sure we're going to get specifics. I think it's like 20 feet maybe is regulation. It, it, de- it depends on which governing body you go by. So we'll talk about all of that in a moment. <laughs> less is more. More is less. More well, social distance. More social distance. There we go. Because I was, I was worried a little bit about the first two because I don't think there's anything lesser about Stacey Moore. Uh, there is definitely a limit to how much early life information there is available for Stacey Moore. So I'm fairly certain he's born in 1970 because like all the articles in say 2021 say he is 51 years old, but there are some from very early in 2021, like in March, where conceivably he could have turned 51 the year before. So I just want to say real quick, it is possible that Stacey Moore was born in 1969. It's a possible nice, but not a true nice. It's Schrodinger's nice. One thing we do know for certain is that he is born in Charlotte, North Carolina. Like many in North Carolina, his passion is basketball, particularly college basketball. He is of the North Carolina State Wolfpack, class of 91. And here in 91, he is going to embark with his father, William, his grandfather, Joseph, on what they think is going to be their next like long-time venture. And it's a venture in the world of sport. It's with the GBA, 
or the Global Basketball Association, which is being put together by Ted Stepien. Oh, no. Oh, no. Don't let him in charge of anything. Well, this is so bad. He had to go start his own (laughs) basketball league with blackjack and hookers. (laughs) And unlimited trading of first round picks. And this is the first of two professional basketball leagues that he will try to run, which does give a little bit of ominous foreboding for the fate of the GBA here. But we'll get to that in a second. The idea behind the GBA is that it is truly going to be global. They're trying to work it out with a team in France, trying to work it out with a team in the Soviet Union. And they're also trying to get, you know, exotic American locales like Nashville and Raleigh and Greensboro, North Carolina. So it's the South and Russia. Love it. Pretty much. And we're going to zero in there on the Greensboro City Gators. Gators spelled G-A-T-E-R-S. I could not find a reason why, but it is the Greensboro City Gators. And that's the team that the Moore family here, William Joseph and our boy Stacy. By the way, I do not know his mom's name. I do apparently hear that she's got it going on, but that is all that I have in effect of that. <laughs> Founds Wayne's a great band. Anyway, the Greensboro City Gators are not a great team. They are 30 and 33 in that first season. But they do have a tertiary guy that we need to divert ourselves to for just the briefest of moments. MVP, Lloyd Sweet P. Daniels, a guy who uh, supposedly when he was in high school combined the passing of magic with the shooting of bird, but then had so many drug and crime issues that even Jerry Tarkanian at Unilev was like, uh, actually, no. He has this one MVP season in the GBA. This is part of a 29-year stretch where... Lloyd Daniels is going to play for 30 teams. That is an average of more than one per year. And it's going to take place over 10 different countries. In addition to the NBA, where he tries out for the Knicks very briefly, plays 142 games with the Spurs, his longest tenure with any team, Spurs legend Lloyd Daniels, and then five with the Sixers. So he does touch all of us a little bit. He also gets Toronto. So that's where he gets Canada in. Then he's also got New Zealand, France, Italy, China, Turkey, Greece, Portugal, and Venezuela. So close to getting every continent. So close. If the Antarctican League ever got founded, I'm sure he would have played in it. This is his only season for the Gators. It's the only season, period, that the Gators ever finish. They fold halfway through the second year along with the rest of the Global Basketball Association, which dies very, very quickly because Ted Stepien's bad at running things. It lasted longer than the AF. Yeah, that's true. Never forget... Uh, Birmingham Stallions. (laughs) Moore takes a break from sports. Goes back to school. Uh, He's going to get his MBA from University of South Carolina. Go Cox. And working in finance for a while. He's like, "Ah, do I want to get back into sports in the 2000s? He's thinking maybe I'll become an agent. But then something else happens. Because this whole time, like he's an NC State grad. Same as his dad. Same as his grandpa. They've been going to tailgates for the football team forever. It was around this time here in the turn of millennium that he realized just how different tailgating had become and how much it had changed and grown, especially in respect to the games that are being played there. What kind of comes about from this is in mind, it's a, the initial plan, something called tailgating ventures. And this is a very broad idea that he has. It's basically an umbrella company where he's going to put out feelers with a bunch of like smaller brands for ladder golf for horseshoes for like anything that he thinks he can maybe see grow into a little bit more of a organization that can be marketed around so he makes this big tailgating ventures from this comes the american tailgating league and from this comes megagate this is the 2011 like tailgating olympics it is 
not a mega success. It does lose money. And the next year, it gets up to breaking even. Mega Gate 2 does just break even. But he decides he needs to pare it down a little bit because he there's one sport above all else that like he has found there is a passionate player base and fan base for here with Tailgating Ventures, and that is Cornhole. A brief history of Cornhole. The earliest, like, direct predecessor comes to in the 1880s. This is uh, almost ironically an attempt to bring a classic lawn game called Coit indoors, to make it a, an indoor parlor game. And then eventually in 1974, you get a popular mechanics article that calls it Beanbag Bullseye. From there in Chicago and Cincinnati over the next 10 years into the 70s and 80s, this is where it takes hold in its modern form. The game is played very similarly and scored very similarly to Horseshoes. You've got two opponents on either side of a 27 or 30 foot distance between opposite boards. There are some that say 27 feet. There are some organizations that say 30 feet. It's basically the same. You've got these two boards, approximately two feet by four feet, exactly two feet by four feet if you're playing regulation, but many people make their own. The name cornhole comes from the hole that is inserted nine inches down from the top of the board, which is slightly slanted upwards. And then the corn coming from the corn that would have initially been the filling in the bean bags. Those bean bags, by regulation, have to weigh between 15.5 and 16.5 ounces, so basically a pound. And scoring like horseshoes, you're trying to either get on the board for one point or in the hole for three points. And as with horseshoes or curling or anything that's scored like this, you are subtracting the lower point total from the higher point total, trying to reach 21 altogether. This can be 1v1, this can be 2v2, it can be whatever team size you want, taking four bags at a time until somebody scores 20. So that is cornhole. And by the mid 2000s, they're already Two organizations that are trying to like be the cornhole organization, both based around Cincinnati. The first one came about in 2003 is the American Cornhole Association, and mostly just wanted to like be a set rule book that could kind of like then license out and grow the game to intramural leagues or to colleges and stuff like that. So while they do, of course, then have parameters for equipment that they conveniently sell, it is largely like a we want to make cornhole a bigger thing. The ACO, the American Cornhole Organization, which is a legally distinct entity and founded in 2005, that's the one that really starts setting up tournaments. And yes, there are, of course, equipment specifications for their tournaments. Why, yes, of course, you can also purchase those from the American Cornhole Organization. Everybody's these, getting a little taste. Both of these just remind me of the American Dodgeball Association of America. <laughs> well, just wait, because we've got one more cornhole coming to us. Because with that second mega gate behind us, Stacy can see that Cornhole and its players, they want this next level of competition, and he doesn't think the current landscape is equipped to do that. And so he gets to work on building the ACL, the American Cornhole League. Don't tear us apart, baby. Give me that Cornhole. There's too many acronyms that, are, that all start with AC. Here, I'll let you know, we only care about the ACL now. Like, that's, okay. that's it, because it very quickly, like, launches. Stacy Moore is a smart dude about making this happen because he knows he's going to be seen as an outsider. He has not been like on the cornhole circuit. He is not an athlete coming to this. He is someone who's got a mind for business and loves sports. So that's why he wants to get involved now in this league. It is not because of his own competition. Because of that, he knows, look, glory is great. People love glory. People love trophies. People also like cash prizes. 
And so he fronts in the first year of the league in 2015, $50,000 of his own money. Everything writes as he spent it. I am choosing to interpret that as it was his $50,000 that was put forward as the first year prize for all of the combined ACL tournaments. While we're going to give Stacey Moore some credit there for putting his money where his mouth is, he is also hard at work at making sure he can put other people's money. A couple years later in 2017, he decides like he wants to secure some sponsorship. So he picks five companies on LinkedIn. And of the five, exactly one responds. They're immediately on board with it. And so he sells the naming rights for the league to America's favorite sausage, Johnsonville. And so the Johnsonville American Cornhole League just continues. It's plugging along. As I said, they get some ESPN airtime. They make it up to ESPN3 in 2016 with their first ever like full championship the championship of bags and then the 2017 edition of the championship of bags makes it all the way up to espn2 and that's where it lives for a little it's got a little niche carved out it's a fun little sb nation sport kind of it feels like it occupies roughly the same space as the 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 hot dog competition Yes. And it's like even a little bit longer because you get more competitions than just the hot dog one, but very much the same. Like there are people who love this and those people won't go away and it may never get bigger than that. Right. I mean, it, like it just in the sense of like when it's on, you're like, holy shit, this is on. Like I exactly. would say like in the Winter Olympics, that's like curling for me. Like I know <laughs> nothing about curling, but the second it's on, I'm like, holy shit, let's watch some curling. It should all let's- be on the Ocho. Dude, you know they appear on the Ocho. I you know, know it's, it's on the Ocho. Ocho. I'm just this saying, it, it, it's all the Ocho. It's all the Ocho. It's Ocho all the way down. That should have been the name of this t- category. Would it be on ESPN 8 the Ocho? Well, so here's the thing. They're, like, hoping to work their way up to ESPN at some point. And they've got this big tournament that is, I think, this year is still going to be on ESPN 2 initially. It's in Cleveland, and it's set to take place late March 2020. Then Rudy Gobert gives everybody COVID-19 and the world shuts down. Literally, the night that people come in is the night before the tournament and when they have to decide to call the tournament. So, like, everyone is in their hotel rooms as the world shuts down, finding out, sorry, there will not be a cornhole tournament this year. Stacey Moore, he mopes about this for a couple days. Three to four days, by his reporting. Absolutely despondent. He thinks this is going to be the end of the league. Because, I mean, you look at the XFL. It was the end of that XFL. I know it's been resurrected once again, but, like, sports leagues died because of this. He thinks he's going to go that way. Then after that, a light bulb goes off for Stacey Moore. He says, you know what? We're going to be the first live sport back on TV. Because just as you said initially, Diaz, like, despite being a game that's very based around social origins, and I find this interesting in particular, like, it is so much about socializing with people, and yet it is perfectly suited to social distancing. Very quickly, Stacey Moore launches into action. Like, we're going to limit the number of players that are invited at a time. We're going to find somewhere in the Southwest that's like in driving distance of a bunch of different pros. We're shooting for Texas. We're going to end up in Phoenix. As I understand it, it's a common tale for many people that end up in Phoenix. And technically, the Korean baseball organization had become the first international sport to come back on earlier this week. On Saturday, May 2nd, noon Eastern time, Hours before a UFC event would later take place that night, Cornhole Mania 2020 does indeed become the first American sport back on television being broadcast on ESPN. Do you remember those days of getting up at 3 a.m. to watch Korean baseball? Because 
we were so starved for anything. Yes, I was watching them at work, just like I was watching Cornhole at work. NC Dinos, let's go. It was the KBO. Ping Pong was really big. They were still playing Ping Pong. I do find it funny that, as we've said, Cornhole, with its perfectly designed rules for social distancing, on the same day, just by a couple hours, beats UFC and like MMA being the absolute worst sport possible for social distancing. The most intimate you could be short of like filming sexual activity, frankly. Right on top of each other. But the corner men wore masks, don't worry. <laughs> the little cuck corner men. Anywho, speaking of being on top, Cornhole was on top of the world, baby. They were broadcast on ESPN for seven more weeks. Seven weeks we've got Cornhole on ESPN. No numbers, just straight up ESPN. Cornhole fever is the second most infectious disease sweeping the country at this point. Uh, in all seriousness, the exposure during the pandemic does end up helping the lead explode. It is a social media phenomenon once again, except this time, instead of being a social media phenomenon for like the people that happen to turn on the hot dog eating contest, for example, it's a social media phenomenon for everyone that's watching sport because it's the only sport on. And it is able to get additional food-based sponsors. They get Subway on board with them. Now they also get some outside investments, VC firms, because he's trying to build the prize pool. He knows that's what you need for the best competitors. I have to make another like quick tertiary jump because one of the very biggest investors that gets in with this is John Thompson. And this is not John Thompson Jr., the legendary Georgetown coach who then played in the NBA backing up Bill Russell for two championship teams. Or sorry, did that first, then was the Georgetown coach <laughs> who won in 1984 with Patrick Ewing and like stood up to a DC drug lord and narrowly avoided being on a 9-11 flight. It's not that John Thompson Jr. It is John Thompson III, his son, who went to play for Princeton, coach for Princeton, and then also coached for Georgetown afterwards, making a Final Four early and then losing in a bunch of first and second rounds. Clearly, with all those first and second round losses, John Thompson knows how to pick a winner. And so he has picked to invest his substantial money now in the American Cornhole League. Georgetown has fallen very far, but I'm glad John Thompson has found something to do with his money and his time. I'm just glad that Georgetown learned the lesson of nepotism and to not hire from within. So they went from John Thompson's son to Patrick Ewing. And now John Thompson III recognizes that a better investment of his money than the Georgetown Athletics Program is the American Cornhole League. God, Patrick Ewing won one Big East title with a sub-500 team. People thought Georgetown was back. But don't worry, Patrick Ewing Jr., I think, is going to be done with his bouncing around Europe basketball career soon. He'll need something to do. <laughs> now, one thing I don't want to do with Stacey Moore and the ACL is paint the picture that like they've been completely without problem and that they are like fully evolved past the ACO and the ACA again, like those guys, they're charging for all the equipment. One very important thing about the ACL is they just instead found a bunch of approved vendors and said, we trust these people to make high quality and ACL accepted equipment. So they went across the board and just like have said, these are the vendors you can purchase from. This has, though, led to some controversial moments with bean weights or moments about, like, the grain of the wood. So there have been some times where the cornhole community has had some uproars because of the more laissez-faire way that the ACL handles approval of equipment. But I do 
it's a little controversial, but even then I think that's coming from a better place with the ICL of saying all of these guys' equipment's good. We're not trying to get you to spend money. We're trying to get money to the best cornhole players out there. God damn it. And even as COVID has gotten slowed down and managed to some extent by the country, the like increased competition of all the sports coming back has not squashed cornhole. It's still like going pretty strong. There's still a nice shine on it. As of 2022, we said that 50,000 was the total prize pool when it started in 2015. It is all the way up to 5 million last year, which was paid out to uh, about 250 professionals. Basically, if you win an ACL event at any level, you're considered a professional. That's where they get their pool from. And uh, as far as Stacey Moore is concerned, we're not done growing. In 2019, he founded a nonprofit governing body, USA Cornhole, because he does see cornhole in the Olympics someday. Certainly not in 2024, but someday. If breakdancing could be an Olympic sport, why not cornhole? Why not? Why not? It would, it would be one of the like less absurd things about a guy's journey that has involved a global basketball league folding, a LinkedIn email to a sausage manufacturer, and the worst global pandemic in a century. That is all given us Stacey Moore. So you, I don't think, can tell me that anything could possibly be any more ridiculous. One thing, though, that would be ridiculous would be to deny a spot in the hall to my guy, Stacey Moore. No, it's an incredible guy. I mean, we love guys who advance their sport, bring it to prominence, you know, because the more sports we know about, the more guys there can be. And we, I think we owe, even if uh, Stacey Moore were not to be elected this time, all future cornhole candidates, of which I'm sure we will have many, um, we're just waiting for the Pete Weber of cornhole certainly. to come. But certainly we would... They, they will owe their legacies and their guidance to Stacey Moore. They will. And, and like I said, I, I think it would be ridiculous to not put him in the hall. But to be fair, there is still another guy to consider. There's always a third guy. And I think we've talked about some guys so far that have done a lot for their sport. You know, Stacey Moore may not have invented cornhole, but it sounds like he perfected it. Alan Francis didn't invent horseshoes, but it sounds like he just about perfected it. But I want to talk about somebody that did invent their sport. A lot of the time, you know, with the sports that we love, their roots can be ambiguous and confusing sometimes. Really, the one sport that I can think of where there is a direct knowledge of who created it would be basketball, uh, Dr. James Naismith. But with some other sports, like we know, we know American football is like a spinoff of rugby. And we know rugby started at some school, but we don't really know who was the first person to say, hey, let's play rugby. Baseball, we thought for a little bit it was Abner Doubleday. Turned out it was just some other random fucker named Abner wanted to give this guy Abner credit. (laughs) It's an Abner conspiracy, but thankfully we figured it out uh, before Abner Doubleday got credit for baseball. But because of that, we don't really know who created baseball. But there is a sport that's very similar to baseball and yet entirely different. Uh, where we do know exactly who created this sport. At, at some point, I think each and every one of us listening to this podcast, recording this podcast, has gathered around to get a white ball with some holes in half of it. We get a skinny little yellow bat, and we try to hit that funny ball that bends in crazy ways that we certainly could never do with the baseball. And in honor of that, we must acknowledge the guy that created Wiffle Ball, the inventor of the sport, 
whose family still to this day runs the wiffle ball company, talking about David N. Mullany. M-U-L-L-A-N-Y. And hopefully we'll get to the root of why he is a guy, but we always start at the beginning. And as with yours, James, it's somewhat ambiguous when David was born. It could have been 1908. It could have been 1909. We're not sure. They didn't keep records back then. But we do know that he was born in Connecticut. He comes from a humble family. They worked on a tobacco farm in Massachusetts. They didn't even make the cigars. They made the things that you put the cigars in. So that's how humble of beginnings we're talking about. But they made enough to get by. They made enough to feed the family and to provide the sustenance for David to go on and have a pretty successful baseball career. All through high school, he's known as a very good baseball player. Uh, He also did well in the classroom, which allowed him to be the first person in his family to attend college when he would attend UConn. And he would not only go to school there, he would play for the UConn baseball team. Future Big 12 member, UConn Huskies, you know, that Texas, Connecticut team. That that Southern pride that we all know and love up in Connecticut. David was a, uh, he was a lefty. He was a lefty pitcher is really what he was known as. And played pretty well for the Huskies. Again, record keeping isn't really a thing back then. We know that he played for them. We know that he was well regarded. We know that he was spoken of highly in newspaper clippings. Uh, He's a very good lefty pitcher. And on the back of that, he would eventually get his degree from UConn, and he would graduate in the early 1930s, which was famously a great promising time for economic development and prosperity within the United States of America. No, folks, it was the Great Depression. It was a horrible time to be entering the workforce. The one thing that saves David is his baseball prowess. Back then, we not only had the, the major leagues, the professional leagues, we had these industrial leagues where just companies would have their own baseball team. And he's essentially a mercenary for all of these teams throughout the greater New Haven region. He's just a ringer that get, gets jobs like office. What are some of the jobs that he had or some of the companies that he worked for? Unfortunately, in my research, I wasn't able to find like a <sighs> list of the different industry baseball teams that he played for. But I know that in hopping from team to team, he made enough to to get by, to kind of make a living, but not enough to really start or sustain a family, which is a goal that he had at this point. He's living at the local YMCA. So even though he's still making enough to live, you know, he's making enough to pay for his meals. He's not thriving by any stretch of the imagination. But one of his former teammates hit him up and they had an idea to start a company together. We're not quite at wiffle ball yet. At this point, we're still just trying to get by. So he is approached by a former teammate with the idea for a one wipe on, one wipe off car polish. Uh, and they, <laughs> try, trying to you know brighten up their futures, brighten up their cars. And the company does all right for a couple of years. Enough time passes that David did think he was going to keep bringing in this sweet car polish money. So he started a family. He's bought a home. But... It eventually has to file for bankruptcy. And now he is unemployed. But he's not too proud of this. And he doesn't want to admit this to his family. So what he instead does is he cashes out his life insurance for way cheaper than it would have eventually paid out. 
essentially sells the policy. And this gives him the sum of $2,500, which back then is enough to, for a few months, lie to your family and pretend that you're still employed. <laughs> so every morning, gets up, he puts on his suit, he drives his car to just nowhere, hangs out for eight hours, comes home after, says, yep, tough day at the car polish factory. Um, so he didn't, he didn't take the loan out to like get a new job or start something. He's just living off his life insurance. And completely living a lie to his family. And this is just, just Patrick from that episode of Spongebob when he pretends he's going to work actually just goes to his house and eats food and watches TV the whole time. I mean, look, I think he was more so like being depressed about his life than eating food and watching cartoons. Sure, um, I'm sure there's a good reason behind it. That's just not what I expected to be done with the $2,500. Listen, it, it's enough to maintain an illusion, and it's enough that when he comes home from a long day of pretending to be employed, his kids are happily playing different ball games in the front yard. Uh, Stickball is something that people have always played, right? You get a tiny stick, you get something that kind of resembles a ball, you throw it, you try to hit it, you have a good time. But there's some inherent risks that are kind of presented with this. First of all, kids are stupid. They might get a ball that is entirely too hard, and if something is done with it, it might be hit through a window, uh, it might break that window. You might never tell your parents about the window being broken until six months later your dad says, huh. I was wondering why the draft was coming in here. This window's broken. And then you look at your dad and you say, yeah, I don't know what happened there. That's crazy. <laughs> this certainly didn't happen to me. I certainly didn't do this when I was 13 years old. Um, no, so that, that was, that was David Mullaney's kids. That was David Mullaney's kids. It wasn't me. It definitely wasn't me. But you never know what's going to happen with a ball like that. You might break a window. And the other thing is, you know, they're trying to throw these balls in a way to like put different like curves on it. Kids are like hurting their elbows, they're hurting their shoulders because these balls just aren't meant to bend in that way. There's a reason why people that can make a baseball move in crazy different ways are paid millions of dollars a year to do that. So he notices these two things and he figures there has to be a better way. So his son, David A. Nunnally, who's 12 years old at the time, uh, he and his son start getting to work on some different designs that they want to try for a, a more consistent ball to use in stickball. They go through a few different designs. They try square holes. They try round holes. And, you know, the family doesn't have a ton of money at this point. So one thing that is very helpful is in his research, he had a former teammate that worked at Cody Perfume, uh, and they sold their perfume bottles in a hard plastic ball that was roughly the size of a baseball. So essentially he has all of this old perfume stock that he can try different designs on and they try square holes. They try round holes. They try doing holes on the whole thing. They try doing holes on just one half and a whole bunch of designs fail until one day David senior comes out with a ball that has eight different oblong kind of holes on one side it's solid on the other, and he gives it to his kids in the morning before he goes to work, and he says, let me know how you like this one. When he comes home from a long day of pretending to be employed, they're <laughs> still playing that same game in, in their front yard um, with that same ball, and it was then that he knew that 
he had his winning product. He and his kids had been the same level of productive that day. His kids arguably more so. They did eight hours of market research. <laughs> um, but at this point, they knew that they had their winning product. So they filed a patent shortly thereafter and finally had their winning product, Game Ball. Game Ball is what the original patent was put for. They didn't have a name for it when they started the first patent. But they do eventually settle on, uh, because what the kids would do to each other in the 1950s, if you got your buddy to strike out, you would taunt him by saying he whiffed. Still a term that we use to this day. From there, they derived wiffle ball. But in the nascent days of the company, they were very concerned with things such as paying for each letter of wiffle with an H in their products. An extra letter is like maybe an extra like tenth of a cent on each ball. And he's still riding this 2,500. That's really all he's got. So for that reason and that reason alone, Wiffle Ball is not W-H-I-F-F-L-E. It is W-I-F-F-L-E. But you keep the double F? I've, I have some questions there. I also will admit I feel very stupid for never putting together Wiffle Ball and Whiff. Well, because it's spelled differently. So, I mean, I'm willing to grant you some grace there. What I would say is if you drop the second F, then all of a sudden we're talking no, about it's wiffle, ball. And it's wiffle ball. At least wiffle, like the H is not redundant, but it is, what is, uh, what's the word for like appendix? It's vestigial. There we go. So not necessary. We're going to drop that H and we're going to start with wiffle ball. To finance their first round of mass production of the balls. Does he get a job? No, he takes out a second mortgage on the house. (laughs) (laughs) He was a man that knew ball games and lawn sports. He did not know finances particularly. But look, sometimes dumb luck happens and sometimes bad financial decisions can lead to great profits. On this first round, which is paid for by cashing his life insurance and taking a second mortgage on the home and not getting a job, they sell the balls for 49 cents a pop. And at the Genesis, they're just selling it out of A, the back of their family car, and B, there's a local diner where they would kind of just, you know, play a little wiffle ball in front of the diner, get people's attention. Hey, what do you got there? Oh, well, this is a wiffle ball. And just for 49 cents, you too can have one. The first run of production is successful enough that the second mortgage is the only additional mortgage you had to take out. They're able to take those profits and invest it into a storefront in lower Manhattan, and they are able to hire a marketing team, or excuse me, specifically a marketing agent, not a team, where the initial slogan, a wiffle ball, comes from. It curves, bat it, bounce it, safe anywhere. Really, it just distills the essence of wiffle ball into exactly that. Anybody can curve this ball. You can bat it, you can bounce it. You don't need to worry about it breaking through a window. You don't need to worry about it breaking anything. So to the kids, you're giving them a fun ball that they can throw in crazy different directions. And to the parents, you're giving them the guarantee that their home will not incur property damage while their kids play this game. It's a win-win for everybody. The company continues for about five years where it is now doing well enough to pay for the house, keep the family eating. This $2,500 from the life insurance policy has run out long ago. But Wiffle Ball is doing well enough to keep the family afloat. And then five years later in 1959, 
Woolworth was a big national store at the time, and they strike a deal with Woolworth to sell the wiffle ball at stores nationwide. With distribution locked in, the rest became history, and the game has exploded since then. Mass production of the wiffle ball today does not differ all that greatly from the way that they originally did it. So you actually don't do the whole ball at once. You create two halves of the ball. The one that's a solid half, the one that is the perforated half. You mass produce these separately. These are then pressed together and compressed so that they form one solid ball. And that's the process that we still have to this day. The wiffle ball notably has not gone up a ton with inflation. So it was originally just the ball for 50 cents. Today, you can buy either the ball individually for $2.50 or you can get it with the bat for five bucks. So still an incredibly affordable purchase for any family anywhere and one that can guarantee fun for as long as you have one other person to play with. And even then, if you don't, you can just toss it up to yourself. And that's really what contributes to what is so popular about wiffle ball and why we still love it to this day. If you just have one other person, you can play wiffle ball. You can play with ghost runners. You can mark off different spots. So if you hit it this far, it's a single. You hit it this far, it's a double. It can be scaled so that it's just two people. If you have 30 people at a party, you can play wiffle ball. Fun for any group of any size. There are many professional wiffle ball leagues today. All of them claim to be the one. There's really just... There's so many that it's it's impossible to even count. There are a couple that have appeared on ESPN, but there's only one James which featured Spurs legend Gary Neal playing in Harvard de Grace. Let's go. Gary Neal in the hometown of Cal Ripken Sr. and Cal Ripken Jr. and old fuckface Billy Ripken himself. I love that. Spurs legend Gary Neal, a noted uh, wiffle ball professional player as well. The Wiffle Ball Company today, as I mentioned, still continues to be a family-run business. It's currently with the grandchildren. David Sr. ran the company all the way up through 1990 when he did, unfortunately, pass away at the age of 81. But he left the company to his son, David Jr., who famously was playing in the yard, uh, was the inspiration for the game. Uh, David Jr. has since passed it down to his children, and so it will continue. The original Wiffle Ball Company still operates out of the same town in which it was founded in Connecticut. It's a small production facility. They have 15 employees as a company, but they're keeping it small. They're keeping it affordable and really ensuring that for generations to come, Wiffle Ball will continue to be played. Before I wrap up, I do want to just run off a couple other fun facts about Wiffle Ball that uh, amuse me. The one sport that it kind of occupies that kind of silly space in our heads that may even one day outpace cornhole, James, as you as you went over, I think would be pickleball. Pickleball is taking the yeah. country form right now. Yeah. Originally, when pickleball was invented in 1965, they used a wiffle ball. That was the original regulation ball for pickleball. That makes sense, actually. That makes a lot of sense is like the sort of same physics altogether. Right. And obviously you're able to put way more kind of curve on shots with the pickleball. Uh, the main thing that they found with that is that when hitting it with a full sized paddle instead of just a skinny bat, ball oh, gets great. flattened, ball gets dented way too easily. 
So it ended up going to a more solid plastic ball that's used today. But originally, they wanted to use a wiffle ball. The wiffle ball is also essential to the field of marine biology. Marine biologists will frequently use a wiffle ball when going on dives to use it as just a size reference because if you use a solid ball, it's not going to move as easily through the water. If you use a wiffle ball, it has holes. You're going to be able to get through there with less water resistance. So a wiffle ball is a tool frequently used in marine biology research. As I mentioned, there are many different professional wiffle ball leagues. There's some that are played on just like mini replicas of, say, Fenway Park or Wrigley Field. There's some that are played on just their own fields. But really, you go to like any state in America, there's going to be somebody claiming that they run the preeminent professional wiffle ball league. Wiffle ball, of course, famously safe. But at one point, the state of New York did try to cancel wiffle ball. In April of 2011, the health department of the state of New York included wiffle ball on a list of recreational activities that present a, quote, significant risk of injury to children. This was basically because of a state law that said if there were a camp that included two or more activities that are on this list, it could be counted as a summer camp that was subject to government regulation. So basically for that purpose, wiffle ball was included in this list became a source of frequent ridicule and amusement. There was uh, Parenting.com wrote a satirical article that said to survive classic schoolyard games like Capture the Flag is to cheat death. So that was kind of the sentiment around this. Wiffle ball executives originally thought that the order was a joke. The Mullany family was shocked by this. And basically everywhere across the country comes hammering down on the New York legislature until they do finally pass a law which would remove it from the list of activities that includes a significant risk of injury. What's confusing to me, though, is they did include two other things when removing wiffle ball. They also removed archery and scuba diving from the list of risky activities. Both of which I would say carry a significantly higher health risk at first glance. It, it seems like that might have been like the New York State's legislature's like, fuck you to the people that made them take it off. So far be it from our political system to play political games with the lives of children. That's certainly not something that we've ever done before. See, as um, the only one here who grew up in New York and went to school in New York, New York is really weird about this. So in my last year of elementary school, they banned us from playing in the grass during recess because they considered it too dangerous. So my friends and I, we always played football and stuff during recess. And they banned us from doing that, and they said you can only play on the blacktop, which, in my opinion, is more dangerous because it is asphalt and not grass. But for my last year of elementary school, like there was a playground and everything, they banned us from using it for the entire year because it was too dangerous. No, yeah, that's batshit insane. Sorry. <laughs> but wiffle ball did eventually prevail over the... New York state government. And just one last little anecdote to speak to how central to the American experience the game of wiffle ball is. In the first Gulf War, soldiers overseas would frequently request different items to help get them through, things that would remind them of home. 
One of the most requested items was your standard wiffle ball set with ball and bat included. This was so noticed by the U.S. government and particularly by the Secretary of Defense at the time that they wrote an official note of thanks to the wiffle ball company directed to the Moloney family for their incredible contributions to lifting the morale of the troops. We don't need to talk about who the Secretary of Defense was. We just need to say <laughs> the Secretary of Defense thought that they did a good thing for the troops who, you know, whatever we want to say about the Gulf War or its merits. They, this they is not managed political. to do it with no violence, which is a pretty unimpeachable way of doing it. No violence. There was no violence committed except for the wiffle balls that were brutally murdered and hit for home runs. But no, in all seriousness, the wiffle ball company has done a ton for the happiness of children and adults alike throughout the world. It is probably the most popular game that is played on a lawn in the United States. And for that, I think that we have no choice but to acknowledge and honor the man who invented the sport, who is the progenitor of one of our favorite pastimes, wiffle ball, David N. Mullaney, belongs in the Hall of Guy. I agree. It's sorry, strong, James. No, I'm sorry. it's a good case. Let's, let's, so here's what I'll say. I adore Alan Francis. I adore his degree in agronomy, which to me sounds like the astronomy of farming. So I've just been picturing him like doing star charts about beans. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually the people who make crop circles. Okay, that clears. The thing, though, is it, as much as it sounds cool to watch what I basically can only assume is the closest thing we've had to, like, watching Wayne Gretzky really and be like, oh, okay, this guy's going to have every record by the time he's done. At the same time, I, I think he's one of the closest two good to guys that we've had in a while. Plus, it sounds like he's still an active athlete. He is still an active athlete. You can do horseshoes for a long time. So... With that, I, I, it is, to me, in my head, between David Mullaney and Stacey Moore. And I'll admit, the thing that I think I love the most about David Mullaney, and you've touched on it, is, is it's the same reason that The Sandlot is my favorite baseball movie. It's because The Sandlot is the level of baseball that I think is most universal to everyone. It's the level of baseball that, you know, even more than literally everyone, or at least the most people, can relate to that level of disorganized baseball and that universality of wiffle ball is certainly a strong suit i don't think that that necessarily on its own beats the universality of of cornhole i think that those are two equally prolific sports at this time one person admittedly is the inventor of one one is just a promoter of the other it's all true that being said when you bring into the fact that pickleball is also going to be able to tip its cap to him you bring up the fact that he is helping further science. Honestly, what is left is the biggest knock against him, which is surprising me because he comes from a family that does cigar wraps. And then he makes wiffle balls out of old perfume bottles. And he misses the opportunity with both of those parts of his backstory to make scented wiffle balls. That is, I do think, the single biggest knock against him. And if that's the biggest knock against him, then it is a pretty compelling case. I mean, we also just need to like recognize my favorite basketball players, right? Are the guys that just take the dumbest shot available, but it goes in. Like Khalif Wyatt 
taking a second mortgage on your home while your only income is from a life insurance policy that you cashed out and inventing a game for children is a Khalif Wyatt pulling from 35 feet against Duke at the Wells Fargo Center level called shot. And it went in just unreal and like, frankly, probably unmerited confidence in what he was doing. But look at how it's worked out. And like, it's he not only has taken care of his family for life, but again, millions of families across America. We've I, like, if there is a single person who's listening to this podcast that has not played Wiffle Ball, I would be floored. This is going to be a little where Xavier told me that he'd never seen ABC Wild World Sports, and it turns out this, there's this entirely enormous anti wiffle ball community. But you know what? I don't. I, I have played a lot of wiffle ball. I have played every sport that we have talked about, but I can't get over the selling your own life insurance policy, pretending to go to work, and then when you need more money instead of getting a job, taking a second mortgage on your house, all in secret in the hopes that this one thing could possibly work. And this is like threading the eye of the smallest needle of all time. And it worked. And I, I, I love it. But, counterpoint, is it David N. Mullany? Or is it David Mullany the Younger, who, as we've said, was putting in more work with the playtesting often than Dad was? Like, are we even acknowledging the right Mullany in all of this? You know what? The Wiffle Ball Company is a family business. If you induct one, the whole family ben- like benefits from the, it. The David's Mullany. The David's Mullany. <laughs> I, I, I wish I had more backstory on David A. Mullany. But I mean, because the, the thing is, and like this again speaks to like the family aspect of it. You interview any of the Mullanys about it, they're going to give credit to the generation above them. The grandchildren now say, oh, well, it's all dad. And then David A. always says, oh, it's actually my dad. So they are... An incredibly humble and together family. I also Googled how much they make, and it's not a lot. Like, the revenue is under $10 million with 15 employees and, like, the cost of making the stuff. They're not wealthy people. They're, like, okay off, but have chosen to just do this as a family for their entire lives. I'm, like, super into that. Well, and one thing that I also want to just accentuate about them is like they have been approached by many manufacturing companies that would send it over to like China or India or somewhere else where manufacturing is incredibly cheap and they would have been able to increase their profit margins like significantly. But to your point, Xavier, that's almost exactly what they've said. They said, we're making enough money doing it here, doing it in America, doing it the way we always have done it. So why be greedy and go for more? And it makes them perhaps like, I don't even know if they are millionaires. You know what I mean? I was going to say like, they're, they're like the right kind of millionaires, but I don't even think they're millionaires. They're just like very, that, that is the right kind of millionaires, not millionaires, the, the not being one. I mean, now, I, I think, you know, where I'm going to vote James. So you, I, you, you I can make say, this non-unanimous. It's fine. Three different generations of more men invested in a Greensboro professional basketball team that folded. He put up, $50,000 of his own money as the exclusive prize money in the first year of the league survived their biggest competition of the year being canceled the night before due to COVID and came back as the very first sport on live TV, which probably meant that he was viewed by millions. If we're trying to talk about a scale of reach, all that being said, I know when I've been beat, 
know what? You were close today, and close does count in horseshoes and in cornhole, but not on this not podcast. In, and not in <laughs> wiffle ball. But what, what does count, I think, is the great conversation that we've had here. Alan Francis and on another pod, certainly worthy. Stacey Moore on another pod, certainly worthy. But we need to pay homage to the OGs who believed when nobody else believed, who were willing to pretend to go to work for months at a time until... <laughs> until the right idea struck and the right sequence of holes was punctured into a plastic ball to give us an incredible sport and an incredible guy that we are so proud to induct into our hall. The inventor of wiffle ball, David N. Mullany. Welcome to the Hall of Guy. And David A., hold on for now. Just, just wait a little bit longer. Welcome, though, to David N. This was a good one. I was, I was, I was, I didn't know where I wanted to go when you first came up with it, Xavier, but I think, I think we, we all brought the heat. We brought the heat, but we tip our cap to you as the ultimate heat go getter. Hey, maybe by the time you're listening, the heat have gotten something going there in the finals, but we have reached the finale of our episode today. And so we must make our thanks to our chief despondent correspondent, Rico. Producer Craig Bott and all the programmers behind him. Our musical director, Don Ham, for that lovely theme music. And of course, to you most of all, dear listener. If you still have an appetite for guys, we continue to have our guys of the day every day on our Twitter. You can check that and everything else out at bit.ly slash remember that guy. All one word, all lowercase. You can direct a friend there if you want to tell him about the show. If you want to tell Edwin Diaz so that he can listen to the confession about what really happened to that window. This is how we get him in. And, uh, yeah, anything else from you guys? Yankees traded Jose Godoy to the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah, I, we have another catcher. I don't, I don't, since I was told to be positive, things have gone less positively, but that's okay. I'm not allowed to complain anymore. I made a deal. Baseball doesn't count till August. Baseball doesn't count to August. I will say, though, until then, hey, listener, why don't you and I play some Super Mega Baseball 4? Uh, seriously, you should go play Super Mega Baseball 4. I'll be playing it until next week, and until then, I have been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. I'm Diaz, and as we all sing at the seventh inning stretch, it's one, two, three guys were out at the old pod tape. I'm annoyed about it. Diaz no. is actually a millionaire, and he's been lying to us this whole time. And he hosted the, the largest underground cockfighting ring in all of Puerto Rico. Frogs are just water birds. <laughs> Frog fighting. Frog fighting would be dangerously lethal in several South American countries. I mean, in Australia, they do uh, hermit crab racing. It just, and that's just like a normal thing. You could do something like that. Well, hermit crabs aren't lethal animals, I think is what Diaz hey. is alluding to. <laughs> If you ever watched an I Did a Thing video, he made lethal shells for hermit crabs. So, you know, they could oh, be in so the wrong Oh, so you're saying hands. that they've been... So it's, it's about the loadout that the hermit crabs have been given yes. by their... If they have shells with gamer things that owners. can kill people on them, then they could be lethal.